Just two weeks ago, I enjoyed the opportunity to read and discuss St. Augustine's Confessions with six of our high school students, one of which was Charlotte. Sadly, Charlotte is not here to testify. She's away at a volleyball tournament today, so um, you'll just have to believe me that it was her favorite course ever. As I began the class, I told the students that this wasn't some dry piece of theology. This was an older man thinking back on his own life, and especially the time of his life when he was a teenager, their age, 16 years old. And he wasn't some nerd stuck in a book someplace. He was out doing what every teenager does, trying to have a good time. That's the story. Before we're saddled with careers and responsibility, we're just trying to be happy. But as we all know too well, we try to gain that happiness from things that one of my classmates used to call things that were cheap and cheerful. Here today, gone tomorrow. But that leaves us, along with Augustine, feeling empty inside. What lasts? What can I count on in a world that's constantly changing? Well, I imagine that you know the answer since you're sitting here, but it takes the young Augustine about 30 years before he's willing to concede that what is obvious to us here today, it's God himself that's the only thing that lasts eternally. He is the only one that exists before all time. It is he who is the greatest of all goods. He is the most desirable or in the words of the scholastic theologians, the most beautiful of all things. Augustine begins his work with these words, You, my God, are supreme, utmost in goodness, mightiest and all-powerful, most merciful, most just. You are the most hidden from us, and yet the most present among us. The most beautiful, and yet the most strong, ever enduring, and yet we cannot comprehend you. You are unchangeable, and yet you change all things. You are never new, you are never old, and yet all things have new life from you. What the church celebrates in this, the season of Epiphany, is that God himself has made the effort to reveal himself personally, to his whole creation. That's the point of the season, that the whole creation wondered, and God revealed himself personally to his creation. He has become manifest in the word made flesh, Jesus, the Son of God, the Son of Mary. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky shows forth his creative power, says the psalmist. The infinite variety of the universe tells us of his infinite perfection, the rolling waves, the crashing thunder, the biting cold, the scorching heat, all tell us of his power, but they cannot tell us about who he is. They tell us about his mighty works, but they cannot tell us about him as a person. It is only when he declares himself to the prophets, writing the Holy Scriptures, and in the last days, becoming born of a virgin, And now in this new age, in the life and the sacraments of the church, that he makes himself known. And in this manifestation, this epiphany, he reveals his heart of love toward us. 
It is the desire of the true God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit to be known and to be loved by his image-bearing creatures. Even as God is in his essence love, he seeks to envelop us in that great and joyous love for all eternity. And it is with this in mind that we should hear again the well-known account of Jesus' first miracle, turning water into wine. Not to dwell too much on Augustine this morning, but he makes the point that making water or changing water into wine is actually not a miracle at all. Human beings turn wine, uh, water into wine all the time. Human beings know what it means to make wine good or bad. But it is how he does it and when he does it that is the miracle. God's divine power to hold all things together in the countless ways from the molecule to the constellations in their courses should reveal to us the loving providence of God. That Jesus does so only in a moment simply hastens the revelation, the epiphany of who he is. That Jesus commands the servants and they pour the water now wine is the how of the miracle. But it is equally the when that concerns us today. Jesus shows, he reveals his transformative power in the first of his miracles at a wedding where the wine had run out and the party was in jeopardy of being a failure. Why did Jesus perform his first miracle at a wedding? Surely there were plenty of other things that could have, he could have been busy with, starving and sick people, lepers and dead people. And then there were the Romans oppressing his people. But Jesus and his pals turn up for a wedding in the neighboring village, and it is there that he began to reveal himself as the incarnate Son of God. The first sign of Jesus speaks deeply to the longing hope of his own people, the Jews. Throughout the Old Testament, Israel is described as the bride of Yahweh, and he corresponded to them as their loving husband. He had called them from among all of the nations when he brought them out of slavery in Egypt. He had given her priceless gifts as testaments of his love, namely the land of Israel flowing with milk and honey. He had placed a seal upon their love with his law and testimonies that they should keep as a sign of their devotion to him. He promised to love her and protect her from her enemies and to give her countless children as a result of their faithful covenant. But she had not been faithful to her husband Yahweh and had followed after other gods. Idolatry and adultery are simply corresponding faces of the same coin, the failure to keep one's promises. The Israelites, the Hebrews, the Jews had worshipped the gods of their neighbors, seeking political and financial security. The blessing of crops or the blessing of peace from dumb idols that could give them nothing. They sought in places that they could not receive these great goods that they sought all the while ignoring the true God, which had promised to give them all that they needed. And after centuries of prophets calling them back, the Israelites, the wayward wife, there was nothing left to do but to separate. Sending Israel into exile in Babylon, you see, is the political equivalent of a domestic divorce. 
Yahweh could no longer allow his faithless wife to continue in the land that he had given her. She had sought comfort among the gods of the nations. As a result, Yahweh would send her to live among the Gentile nations. But the exile would not last forever. No, even in the moment of punishment, Yahweh promised forgiveness. When they turned from their wickedness and cried out for forgiveness, he promised that he would return to them and he would return them to the land. He would take away their hearts of stone and would give them hearts of flesh. The law would no longer be written on tablets of stone spoken to them by prophets saying, thus says the Lord. No, when he forgave his people, he would write his law upon their hearts. And more than all of these, Yahweh promised to return and live among them. The marriage would be restored, you see. Husband and wife would be reunited. Divine love would be manifest among his people. And Jesus performed his first sign at a wedding in Cana. But Jesus' first sign at a wedding is not simply a revelation of his identity with Yahweh, the true and faithful husband of his people, but it also reveals to us the blessing and holiness of the marriage between a man and his wife. This is true for the whole of the Epiphany season. God is revealed in Jesus, but he is also revealed in us. The transformative power of God is not confined to his mighty works in the man Jesus, in his earthly ministry, but now flow out into the world and especially in the life of the church. And we, as members of Messiah's family, must be transformed into his glorious body. So Paul can write to the Ephesian Christians that the marriage between a man and his wife revealed to us the mystery, which is the love that binds the Messiah to his church. That is why it's right to say that marriage is a sacrament. It is an outward and visible sign of an inward and spiritual grace authorized by Christ himself. The Book of Common Prayer describes Christian marriage as an honorable estate. That simply means that because God has made the perpetual, exclusive union between one man and one woman the way the world should be ordered, we should give it our greatest respect. How do we honor marriage? Well, first of all, we should encourage people to be married. It's a good thing. We should behave in such a way in our own homes and in our own public lives that our children say to themselves, I think I'd like that for myself. This is a good place to be. I want to share everything that I have and everything that I am with one man or one woman for the rest of my life. It's too easy for us to sit back comfortably and say, look at those people who are sleeping around cheating on their husbands or their wives, that's too easy. When we disrespect our own husbands and wives, criticizing them in front of our own children, we dishonor the estate of marriage. We who are to be exalting, honoring the state of marriage, when we ourselves do not honor it in front of our children, we are dishonoring the estate of marriage. Instead, we should always remember that this man, This woman that the Lord has given to you is his greatest revelation of himself and his love for the church. Of course, the objection is always raised, well, you haven't met my husband. 
you haven't met my wife. And yes, that is certainly true. Each one of our marriages is a tiny shadow, a sad little shadow of the glorious revelation of that marriage, which is between Christ and his church. There are some marriages that must be ended for the safety of the family members, but we should be clear from the outset that this is a terrible and dishonorable thing, even though it may be necessary. But in our vagrant culture, if we can even call it a culture, it's too, only too quick to throw away people who are inconvenient to us, that don't give us our own way, that don't serve our every whim. But I wonder if we have considered where any of us would be today if Jesus thought about his marriage to the church the way that our world thinks about marriage between husbands and wives. I think it's fair to say that we would all be lost and without hope. But Paul reminds the Roman Christians with these words, God shows his love to us in that while we were still sinners, the Messiah came and died for us. The same Jesus, you see, that made the wine and blessed the wedding in Cana is the same Jesus who died and rose again. It is all part, one large story, one amazing event in which God is revealed to us, the great epiphany, the great revealing of the love of God for his world in the person of his son, Jesus, both God and man. Are we surprised that Jesus began his earthly ministry by helping a young bride and groom have a good time at their wedding? Doesn't that seem a little beneath the grandest sweep of cosmic salvation that we expect Jesus to be about? We shouldn't be surprised if we know who Jesus is. For who is Jesus but the very beloved of the Father? He is the object of the Father's love and the expression of the Father's love for the whole world. For God so loved the world that he gave us his only Son so that anyone who believes in him shall have eternal life. These words from John are deeply and mysteriously true, for they draw all of our loves up into them. The love of a beautiful sunset, a moving piece of music, the love of a parent for a child, the love of a husband for a wife. You see, all of these bear within them the joy of eternity. The Christian life is so often considered drudgery, avoiding fun, keeping of rules, when in reality the Christian life is actually about seeking eternal happiness in the presence of the God who is himself love. At, at a wedding, we see a man and a woman proposing to one another the thing that God actually promises to everyone who has faith in his son. Perfect love, perfect community, perfect joy. That the husband and wife do it imperfectly only points forward to the perfection of eternity for all of us when we, each one, will come to that perfect love of God Almighty. Amen.